Good afternoon and welcome to another Blaney's podcast. This afternoon I have the pleasure to have Mr. Jim Edney with me, the uh, leader of the family group in our Blaney podcast studio. Good afternoon, Jim. Good afternoon, Luke. Jim, I'm going to put you in in a situation that you probably find yourself in on a daily basis. You get a phone call from a, a new client or an existing client and he says, Jim, I need to separate from my wife. I can't stand this anymore. Now, when you hear that, what does it mean to you and what does it mean to the client to use the word separate? Okay, so it's a very common occurrence. Uh, Very often on the first uh, phone call, I will have a new client or prospective client call me and tell me they want a separation from their spouse. And in law, there really isn't a term that uh, defines uh, what they're looking for in those terms. What they're telling me in shorthand they're looking for is a separation agreement. Uh, because they believe that they have actually, in fact, already separated from their spouse. So separation in law is a concept that has many facets to it, and the case law has determined that you can't look at one of the factors in isolation. You need to look at all of them. Uh, You look at factors that indicate whether or not the couple remains an intact couple, Uh, such as do they live in the same home, do they share the same bedroom, do they share the same bed, do they have sexual relations with each other, do they uh, take meals in the house together, do they do household chores for each other, do they go on vacations, do they hold themselves out to their friends and family as married or separated. And clearly, if you start getting answers to those questions, more no's than yes's, Uh, the inference can be drawn that the spouses are then separated. So it's not just as simple as uh, the client saying, I'm going to move into a hotel and I'm never coming back. I don't care what she says. Well, the the importance of the date of separation uh, is that, you know, in many cases in a marital breakdown in particular, there might be uh, various separations that occur in fits and starts. Um, what the law takes into account is the final separation where it can be said there is no longer a reasonable prospect that the spouses will resume cohabitation. So um, sometimes uh, when the one spouse moves out of the home and takes a motel room, um, that is it. The, the marriage is over and uh, the, uh, the separation proceedings uh, begin at that time. So, so when somebody comes to speak to you about a, a separation and they want to separate from their spouse, uh, is there any kind of um, legal consequence that flows from that that you need to address either by way of uh, court application or by way of agreement? Or what does it mean to separate as far as the law is concerned? The date of separation is important as far as the law is concerned for a couple of reasons. The, the main reason why it's important is that's when the rights and obligations of the spouses to each other and the, any children that they may have start to arise uh, with the application of both the Divorce Act and the Family Law Act. Um, particularly the Family Law Act uh, uses the date at which the spouses separate with no reasonable presumption that they will resume cohabitation for what is called the valuation date. And that is the date at which assets are equalized. The other uh, reason why the date of separation is important to a lesser degree is that first date is uh, used when calculating the period of separation under the Divorce Act uh, to determine whether or not a divorce can be granted on the grounds of the parties living separate and apart. To obtain that relief, the parties have to live separate and apart for at least one year. Now, you've mentioned that separation triggers certain obligations. Can you tell me what obligations you're referring to? 
Well, there's many obligations. I can't list them all, but the main ones are uh, support for the family. So that could be both child support and spousal support. Also the rights of property division and uh, the right to seek an equalization of net family property under the Family Law Act. Those are the main ones. And then, of course, you get issues that relate uh, closely to that, such as uh, custody for children and access and, and anything to do with children. I presume that the uh, the notion of custody uh, is one that is not easily addressed at the first meeting or uh, dealing with a uh, a client who just simply wants to have his kids. I presume it's a little more complex than that. It, custody is a very difficult area of the law. Um, I often tell my clients that the test for a grant of custody by a judge is the simplest test to articulate and probably the hardest to apply. So the test is simply what is in the best interests of the child or children. Many thousands of years later, we're still talking about King Solomon uh, for the very reason that it's almost impossible to apply that test. So what are the various options that could occur when we're talking about custody? Really, there's only three. The child will either, and, and to be clear, custody in my world means the right to make decisions that affect the care and upbringing of the child. It does not mean where do they live. So in terms of making decisions for a child, a custodial decision, there are only three options. Uh, sole custody to the mother, sole custody to the father, or joint custody. Lawyers uh, often get paid a lot of money to come up with creative terms that might sound different but mean the same thing. In law, those are the three options. When we talk about a child, what exactly does the law say a child is or defines what a child can be? So a, a child um, is a person who cannot take care of themselves. Clearly, any uh, uh, person under the age of 18 is defined to be a child uh, axiomatically. If a, a child can be, remain a child after the age of 18, if they are unable to support themselves by virtue of basically full-time attendance in a course of education that will assist them in obtaining gainful employment. Does that issue of definition of child apply uh, with respect to the issue of custody as well? Uh, Actually, no. Custody would only be applicable for children under the age of 18. So the other definition, which is what you said, attending school at a full-time basis, that's an issue for some other legal consequence. What what would that be? It would be for support of that, um, what you might call adult child, so a child over the age of 18. So many people falsely assume that they're only obliged to support their children in their educational endeavors and otherwise up to the age of 18. But when a uh, divorce uh, happens or the provisions of the Family Law Act kick in, Parents no longer have that option to decide whether or not to support their children, and the law is clear that children over the age of 18 uh, are uh, entitled to continued support. Let's go back now to the issue of custody, and you indicated that there were three options that were normally available, custody to one spouse, custody to the other, and joint custody. Now, when you are dealing with the notion of custody, uh, I presume that court is not the only option. Uh, in terms of addressing what is in the best interest of the children? No, uh, you are absolutely correct. Uh, Court is probably the last option. It is the least palatable option. It is the means that is probably the least (coughs) suited uh, for the purposes of resolving uh, disputes relating to children in a child-focused and child-friendly way. 
family law um, in Ontario, in Toronto in particular, has uh, had a large influx of cases uh, that are being resolved in what we would loosely call ADR or alternative dispute resolution, using lots of other mechanisms uh, other than going to court to try and resolve these disputes. Can the spouses sit down together, or the parents in this case, sit down together and work out some kind of agreement themselves to deal with the issue of custody? Yes, absolutely. In fact, what we understand statistically is that most cases, an overwhelming majority of cases, as many as 90% uh, of separations are resolved on the basis of the parents making arrangements directly themselves. So this is something that occurs even without going to a lawyer? It it can, yes. um, That's what we believe to be the case. Most people in Ontario that separate never see a lawyer. Now, in one of those exceptional circumstances where you need to see a third party to decide the issues, and that third party is a judge, how does one present a case for a particular parent, for that parent either to have sole or joint custody? What are the issues that you as that person's lawyer would prepare and show to the judge? The the most important uh, factor that we start with is what has the history been that leads us up to the point in time that we need to bring this application on behalf of a client. So in shorthand, we would call that the status quo. What has happened to date during the intact marriage? What were the roles and responsibilities which were adopted? Um, what what did each of the parents do? Uh, what abilities do they have to expand upon those roles and duties uh, now that the marriage has now ended and the family's not intact? That's the most critical factor. You know, you can get into more esoteric issues about uh, people's willingness uh, to do this uh, type of work for their children, uh, whether there might be issues of violence and abuse, whether there be issues of uh, fitness or capability if one of the parents might have, say, a mental health issue or a drug dependency or substance abuse or something of that nature. So all of these factors need to be taken into account. The most important point is what has happened to date that gives you a good indication of what the track record is uh, that might be maintained. So that could get pretty nasty when one starts disparaging the other spouse in terms of whether they're a fit parent or not. It, it absolutely does tend to get nasty right from the outset. And when we talk about the kind of things that uh, the judges look at in one way or the other, um, do we look at whether in fact one one spouse is has more than one girlfriend or boyfriend and they have multiple partners, does that have an impact on how a judge sees a, an individual to be a fit parent? It probably wouldn't have an impact on the issue of fitness. What it would come down to is a, a, a judge factoring those variables into the equation when trying to decide what is best for the child. There is obviously in law nothing inherently wrong with having multiple new uh, girlfriends or partners, but if the child is impacted by those multiple relationships, that certainly can be taken into account. Uh, for instance, if you know if one of the separating spouses has um, gone uh, early and frequently into new relationships, perhaps lived with the new uh, girlfriend or boyfriend, introduced the child or children to those new boyfriends or girlfriends, and those relationships end, that can have an unsettling impact on the child in the separated family. 
Do you find at times the court requires an expert to determine who should be the parent or the more fit parent in terms of custody determination? Yes, there there are provisions in a couple of different locations for outside assistance to be gathered uh, to conduct an investigation and interview process and report to the court on what the best interests of the child would be. The um, Courts of Justice Act contain a provision that allows for the appointment of the Office of the Children's Lawyer to do this work, and there is a provision in the Children's Law Reform Act that allows a private individual, usually a social worker, psychologist, or psychiatrist, to be appointed uh, to conduct basically the same inquiry and report to the court. Now, a lot of people and a lot of uh lay people who do not understand the law hear these stories that young children always go to the mom. Would that be true in your experience? No, it's it's certainly not true. Uh, I think that uh, in the about 21 years that I've been practicing family law, we've certainly seen a shift away from that kind of uh, rigid and prejudicial thinking. Um, there used to be in law something called the Tender Years Doctrine that was applied in Ontario that basically said that young children in particular were best suited to be with their mother. Um, that doctrine is no longer accepted law in Ontario and there is no presumption in the law of Ontario in favour of either of the parents or in favour of any form of joint parenting. Now, you've indicated that the test in terms of custody is what is in the best interest of the child. Are there times when the judge meets with that child directly to make a, to either interview or examine the child in court? This is a very hot uh, topic right now in family law in Ontario. As for the judge seeing a child in court, I personally am not aware of that and I have never seen it. There are instances where judges wish to interview the children. It is usually done in private and uh, in the judge's chambers. It may involve the presence of an independent uh, adult person, such as a representative of the Office of the Children's Lawyer. It might involve a social worker, and uh, what the form of the inquiries would be is entirely up to the judge. One of the factors to be taken into account when making a, a custody order is the views and preferences of the child. And that is the law of Ontario, that the views and preferences of the child uh, shall be taken into account where they can reasonably be ascertained. Obviously, the age of a child and their relative uh, level of maturity is important when assessing whether their views and preferences can be reliably ascertained. Uh, the law of Ontario also mirrors the uh, United Nations uh, code in this respect, that the children's views and preferences need to be taken into account. When we look at a situation where couples have split in an acrimonious scenario. Do you ever find times when the children are used as proxies or uh, used in terms of manipulating events so that one way of getting one spouse back at the other, does that ever occur? It, it happens all the time and it's very saddening. So then it's clearly not your advice to your client to use the children in that kind of way. No, it never would be. It's a... You know, ch children, unfortunately, are caught in these situations. Uh, they don't have control over their uh, destiny. They don't have any control over whether or not their parents remain in an 
intact marriage or in a they are in a separated family. Um, empirical research shows that children, particularly the young children, blame themselves for the marital breakdown in many circumstances. When, of course, um, as uh, objective adults, we know they have nothing to do with the uh, breakdown of these marriages. So, uh, that that is the most difficult part of my job that I have to deal with uh, is uh, dealing with cases where the children are manipulated, where the parents clearly do not have their children's best interests at heart, and they're using the children as a form of weapon to gain some other kind of advantage against the uh, spouse uh, from whom they've separated. So having gone through what you have and seen the uh, the issues that arise when there is an acrimonious fight between parents about the custody of children, I presume that you would always recommend, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the parents sit down as quickly as they can and work out a rational, consensual arrangement for the children. Absolutely, as long as the parents were in a position where they could do that. There might be the rare circumstance where there's violence or abuse or power imbalance where it's not going to be possible to have an effective negotiation. But if the parents are able to put aside their personal differences and work together or think about their child's best interest, the parents are always in a best position to put together a proper plan for their children. They're going to be in a better position to do that than myself as a lawyer. They're going to be in a better position to do that than a judge uh, who's never going to see their children in all likelihood. I presume, however, that if somebody came to see you to seek your assistance in arriving at this kind of custody arrangement, this is something that you'd be happy to do? Absolutely, Lou. This is something that we do on a daily and weekly basis. Jim, if our listeners wanted to get in touch with you to get your assistance, how could they find you and where can they reach you? The easiest way to get a hold of me in the short run is to email me at jedney at blaney.com. That's J-E-D-N-E-Y at blaney.com or my direct phone number is 416-593-3996. Thank you, Jim, and uh, we'll see you on the other side of this podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Blaney's Brief. We have the pleasure again of having Chad Kopach in the studio to talk about ghosts in the building and this real live case of how such ghosts affect the value of the building and whether it is in fact a latent defect. Today's case involves the purchase of real estate and the failure to disclose a latent defect. In real estate, the simple definition of a latent defect is a defect that could not reasonably be detected through an inspection before sale. A seller can be liable for the cost to fix the latent defect if it comes to light that the seller knew of the defect before the sale. But today we're not talking about boring latent defects like rotten wood beams behind drywall. No, we're talking about ghosts, or maybe just one ghost. This case is a little unclear on the number of ghosts involved. The case is Numbered Company and KW Labor Association, Inc. There's a link at blaney.com podcast. The case involves a commercial property in Kitchener. The property was an old union hall constructed in 1922 and was being used at least as early as 1938 for union meetings, according to some records found in the building. The plaintiff numbered company bought the property in September of 2010 for $650,000, which was significantly less than the tax assessment at the time of over a million dollars. The vice president of the Labor Association Board was interviewed by a local paper after the sale, and he was asked why the property sold for so much less than its tax value. The VP listed a number of reasons why, including that most of the business space was not leased out, that the union was wrapping up its affairs given dwindling membership. 
pretty boring stuff and nothing that the apparently unsatisfied plaintiff could use as the basis of an action. But the VP didn't stop there. In an instantly regrettable comment, the VP also said that the property was haunted. The VP said that up on the third floor was an office, and he had heard from a couple of people that some days you see somebody moving around inside there, and there's nobody there. So, haunted third floor. In describing the basement, the VP said that they used to make jokes that Jimmy Hoffa was in the basement. Okay, so maybe a possibly haunted basement. So, of course, in 2012, the numbered company took the only rational step available to them and sued the Labor Association that had sold them the building in alleging a latent defect. And that latent defect was that the property was haunted. This actually happened, like not on TV, and it went before a judge who, not unsurprisingly, dismissed the action on a motion for summary judgment. Based on the motion-level decision, the plaintiff's claim didn't come right out and say that there were ghosts in the building, because that would have been crazy. Instead, the plaintiff tried to dress the claim up as one of a latent defect, the defect being the existence of a death and or murder at the subject property. But there was no evidence presented by the plaintiff of anyone dying in the building. Perhaps at trial, they would have presented expert evidence that ghosts only come about in a certain location when someone dies or is murdered. In Reasons for Decision, Justice Sloan indicates that because the action was based on the newspaper report of the VP saying there was a ghost in the building, the allegation of existence of ghosts had to be read into the pleading. Justice Sloan then had to write at paragraph 20, quote, There is no evidence before me as to how the plaintiff would prove the existence of a ghost. Close quote. That's an actual line from the judgment. At the end of the day, Justice Sloan appears to have based the decision to dismiss the claim on the fact that there was no suggestion the building was unfit for habitation as a commercial building, which was the purpose for which it was purchased, and no suggestion that the purchasers intended to use the building for anything other than a commercial purpose. The action was dismissed in August of 2013, and I would like to say that cooler heads then prevailed, and that was the end of the matter, end of podcast. But sometimes when one loses a case where success appears to depend, at least partially, on the existence of ghosts, there is no other option but to appeal. The appeal was heard on April 4th, 2014. Again, this really did happen. Council acknowledged there was no direct evidence of economic loss or damage as a result of the stigma of a haunted property, and no direct evidence from anyone who observed any strange occurrence at the property. And so the Court of Appeal saw no error in Justice Sloan dismissing the action on summary judgment. Notably, the Court did not find that properties cannot be haunted. So thankfully, the Court of Appeal has probably left the door open for latent defect claims if the plaintiff has direct evidence of economic loss and can prove the hauntedness of a property. This means you can all breathe a little easier when putting in the offer for a condo converted from a penitentiary built on an old graveyard you might be able to get your money back when the lights start turning on by themselves.